I wanted to talk a little bit about this Facebook thing. And I'm going to be honest, I'm kind of tired. And I've done so much quote-unquote research for this week's episode (laughs) that I've kind of like thought myself out of everything. Okay. So we're we're getting you on the down. researched myself into disinterest in everything we're about to talk about. But the first thing I wanted to know is how do you feel about the whole Facebook thing as a Facebook user? Mm. Are you upset over your data being stolen or being used or whatever? I think I'm somewhere in the middle where I confess to not being as worried as I should be about it. But why? Okay, so why should people be worried about it? Well, again, you're talking to somebody who has just admitted to not being as worried why as I should be. Why do you be. think you should be worried about it? So I guess one reason why I should be worried is the slippery slope argument, right? That, mm-hmm. you know... Large, like right now, my data is being used to then, if I search, God forbid, I don't know, I search a uh, a drain declogger, mm-hmm. which I recently did. Now, I get suggestions of different hair decloggers. Yeah. Drain decloggers. Even after you buy one, you're still Even after getting I buy Drano one, ads, I'm still yeah. getting drain ads and all this stuff. And I'm getting like alerts. Hey, that thing you bought is now on sale, you know? So that kind that that right now is a minor annoyance, if not in some cases, like a benefit. If I want to buy a bigger purchase, sometimes I want that. It's like, yeah. hey, I think I'm gonna buy a TV soon. So I'm going to search a bunch of TVs and then for the next six months, anytime I open up, I'm going to see like new discounts and ads and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. that I may or may not want to follow through on and and read. So on that side, it's probably good, but the little purchases, they need to modulate it, you know? So I think it's the slippery slope where now it's a minor annoyance, if not a convenience, but it could very well become a, market negative and then i think also it opens up for apparently what happened with cambridge analytica where you have the undiscerning facebook user who is then going to get be able to get spammed you know messages that will prey on their political leanings and that is not a healthy ecosystem Yeah, I guess I just don't understand, like, I just don't understand what data people are upset about what they think is being used. Like, what data are you putting into Facebook that you're upset that you're kind of voluntarily giving to people mm-hmm. that you're now you know what I mean? you know what I mean like are people upset that their demogra- that their demographics are being used are they upset that their answers to some stupid buzzfeed quiz is being used to like lump them in right you, you know what I mean like 
is that not an assumption that a Facebook user has? Well, like if I was using Facebook, I would be assuming like it's, that's, it's yes, it, exactly. Like you can look at those ads and be like, oh, this thing is showing up because I did this. Right. So are you not are these people not logging into Facebook and seeing like a news article pop up and thinking to themselves, oh, this is popping up probably because I answered this on this quiz. Like, are people that absent minded about it? And if so, if you're that. Like uninvested in what is going on and how this stuff is being used. Why do you care at all, mm-hmm. right? Like, why are you getting upset about it now? Yeah. Like, why is Mark Zuckerberg in front of Congress? You know what I mean? It just doesn't make any sense to me. Well, yeah, I mean, so I think, I think uh, you know, a few things. Number one being that uh, the outrage machine, right? The, our kind of need, our outrage need has to be fed. Sure. Outrage monster. <clears throat> this is a good thing to feed it. Because it's relatively benign. You can get everyone on your side. You're not making a political stance by being like, my data is my data, you know, hands off my data. Um, But I do agree that there are some people who are like, my data is my data. It's like, didn't you just do a 10 day top 10 list of every aspect of your life where it's like, on this day, this quiz is telling me to, to list my favorite albums for you for you guys. And tomorrow I'm going to list my favorite foods and then my favorite places I've been. Like they, they will endlessly do those lists yeah. or even before where they're like, remember when those like hundred plus question quizzes were big that people would, would fill right. out and post? It's like if you filled out one of those, then you can't claim to be as concerned as you are about your surface level data being scooped and analyzed and spit back at you with ads and things like that. Because on some level you want us all to know that you're like the king of, you know, uh, alternative music, you know? So you wear the crown and you also have to deal with the ads that come with that crown because you filled out that stupid questionnaire. Um, so I think for, for those people who want you to have access to their lives through these social media platforms, then be like, how dare you? It's like you just posted 100 pictures of your child in the last Right. Month. The whole point <laughs> is for you to share all of your information with these. Right. Like, that is yeah. literally the design of the, right. of the thing, of, of the, the product that you're yeah. using for free. Yeah. It's like people wake up and they post pictures on Instagram of their alarm clock. And the breakfast they're eating and the shoes they're going to wear to work and, you know what I mean, grabbing a drink at Starbucks. Like, they, they post these right. things onto Track Instagram. my day. Right. Here I go. Right. So people can see what they're doing step by step. And I'm not, like, I'm not trying to, like, rail against the value of any of that. Yeah. I just am confused about the outrage between that and... Now, all of a sudden, they're upset that, oh, wait a minute, this stuff is actually, like, being used or cold or, like, I don't, I don't know, like. But I think it's the who's using it. So, if Cambridge Analytica is caught on camera saying, hey, we can influence, you know, uh, elections, and this is the way we do it. And one of our big tools is to use user data and blah, 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 blah. Now, I also read an article that kind of was like, calm down, Cambridge Analytica is blowing well, right, steam exactly. up their own. You know, this they, is their sales pitch, basically. Right, this is their sales <laughs> pitch. And they're like, calm down, we're, we're not to that level yet, where yeah. they're like, but I think that 
number one, it preys on people's fears, which is always a good way to gin up, you know, uh, to, to get people all riled up is to make them fearful of something. And I think it, 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 again, it goes back to like, it's a benign controversy that everybody can say and get on board with and everyone can get outraged about without being like touching a hot topic, you know, mm-hmm. they can just post this and everyone's going to jump on their bandwagon. Yeah. Now, with all that being said, do, does that mean that I am like, hey, Amazon and Zuckerberg and uh, Cambridge Analytica or whatever, like, here's all my data. Do what you want with it. Um, no, especially because I was a part of the Experian hack, you know, mm-hmm. my uh, financial information. Right. But see, that's leaked. very different to me. Like, that is important information. Like, yeah. the stuff you're putting on Facebook, not important information. You know what I mean? Right. But but to me, it it lends to this idea that as things become more centralized and already Facebook has like a Facebook pay, like you can like, sure. You know? And so, I mean, as social media is getting into the financial aspects of our lives and all those other things, it's going to ask more data from you. And if they're already calling the little data, then they might call the big data. And even if they don't call it that, access that other people might have to it makes it less safe to use and i think facebook wants to give you this impression that like they're a vault like experian is you know and really they're not no one is you know right. your, your data is always one bored hacker away probably from being completely taken you know yeah but that that's also something that had me a little confused and this goes back to the hearing a little bit is that there's nothing about Facebook that is essential to your life. You don't need Facebook to, to go to work to get your job done mm-hmm. unless your job is working for Facebook. You know, you know what I'm saying? Right. Like it is not a, it's not an essential tool. It's not essential to to go back quickly. After all of this stuff, anybody who's using Facebook Pay is like, and this is kind of how I feel about the data thing. Like, I like you you all right. You get what you deserve, I guess. Like, I just <laughs> don't like. I don't understand how anybody could this could happen. Anybody could be surprised or shocked or not understand what's going on. And after all this, if you're using, if you're putting your bank information into Facebook, it's like, how am I supposed to have any sort of sympathy for that? Like you have to, at some point you've got to like use your brain a little bit. Right. And there was also during the, um, one of the hearings, I'm not sure which one it was, but one of the, um, politicians is like asking Facebook about the monopoly they have mm-hmm. and it's and it's and and it's like it, it does Facebook have an, a monopoly on this social this weird thing that Facebook is yeah I mean it's I guess it's the only thing that is Facebook right there's been other smaller things that have tried to come along and aren't doing anything 
which I'll note, like this is this is your free market ideal, right? Like now you guys, <laughs> now all you free market guys are complaining about the monopoly that Facebook has, but this is the this is the free market ideal, right? Like Facebook is is unregulated. It is it has it has no restrictions whatsoever and it is now a monopoly that is that has arguably in the course of, you know, 15 years or however long it's been around has already like heavily influenced an election. <laughs> Right. right. That's your free market ideal. That's what zero government regulation looks like. Um, and so anyways, one of these politicians is asking them about the monopoly and he compares it to how the car industry has been regulated. So if he wants to go find a cheaper car, he can he's using the competition to find a lower price and, and do whatever. Yeah. Blah, 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 so, yeah. Um, but it's like, for, which goes back to another point, like, first of all, a car in modern society is, you could argue, is an essential need, right? You need yeah. that to get to work in a lot of cases, at least in like rural cities or rural areas. But they're also like conveniently leaving out the telecom industry, which they have enabled to build up monopolies, which is now like has a stranglehold on broadband investment, all this other stuff. And it just, the whole, I, I watched, I, I watched maybe like an hour of it on the first day. And then I tuned in on the second day. And as soon as I tuned in, one of them was asking, he's like literally starts asking Mark Zuckerberg about the opioid <laughs> epidemic. And I was like, right. what <laughs> is going on? Yeah. Like these people have done so much shit to our country and have messed things up so bad. And now they have like this unified villain in front of them and they're just going to try and dump everything they can yes. on him. The opioid epidemic. One of them does bring up fiber. He's like, sir, Mr. Zuckerberg, I don't have fiber in my uh, area. Will you promise me to do whatever you can to bring that? And, and it's like, you have caused this. You are passing the laws that have enabled the telecom industry to restrict fiber to your area. You are directly responsible for this. And now it's like you're trying to like play theater. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the goal is. It just was really frustrating to watch. I, I kind of wonder, and again, I'm sure it would be, it would be stressful in some way especially for whatever reason you appear before a committee like that. But I kind of want to do it one time in my life just to kind of sit there and be like, you all are the <laughs> scary representatives of my government, you know, and I'm going to sit here and be scared of you as you like, again, exactly. Ask me questions about, you know, uh, what's a strong password? <laughs> like, yeah. you know, or whatever it is that they want to ask him about. It's completely absurd. And like you said, politics is theater. That's yeah. exactly what it is. So yeah, you get somebody up there and social media and everybody's all crazy about their data being blah, blah, blah. So then you, you know, take a strong stance and make a few like uh, shots at getting on the news because you said the pithy little thing. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't, then no one cares anyway because no one's watching the whole hearing. Uh, and so your dumb question just gets pushed to the back and nobody ever stops to say like, hey, 
that guy who asked Zuckerberg what a computer is, did he vote for our tax bill? Right. You know, like he doesn't even understand the basic concept yeah. of social media. And he passed a spending bill of any proportion. Right. Like what? Right. Like that yeah. just gets, yeah, brushed aside. It's like, oh yeah, no, that's a, that's our senator. Yeah. The, you know? the ultimate irony is that they've got Mark Zuckerberg there because of a data breach, whatever, with Facebook. And all of these people are responsible for passing multiple, what's it called? The Patriot Act? Whatever the, the, the spying act is. Where they're literally <laughs> collecting the data of every single person in America. Like these right. people are the ultimate data breachers, right? And now they have to act like, well, we've got to be upset about this because everyone else is. So. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? And the whole thing is just like, and so there's a part of it that's like, I I don't know how to feel about it because there's a part of it that's like, am I going to be upset at the hypocrisy of the people who are like now feigning up being upset about this data breach? Or do I have more respect for someone like Ted Cruz who's just like, I'm going to ask this guy about Diamond and Silk. I don't really (laughs) care about the data breach. (laughs) Can you really quick, because this is something that I like, when I saw you wanted to talk about this, and we haven't talked about it before, but the one thing that I that I wrote you um, was like, do you want to talk about the memification of the of the Zuckerberg, or do you want to actually talk about the the actual material of you know his testimony? Because something that came out of this, and something that definitely now comes follows everything, every political or cultural fart generates a meme like Mm -hmm. if a movie's good there's gonna be a meme out of it Mm -hmm. if a movie's bad there's going to be a meme out of it you know if zuckerberg testifies before congress memes like so the 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 biggest meme out of it was just how much like a potato or like a robot right he's very robotic yeah he's very zuckerberg (laughs) but the other thing was this like diamond and silk thing that honestly, I couldn't bring myself to click in whatever. <laughs> Can you catch me up? What's the diamond and silk thing? Uh, I know that they're Trump supporters. Yeah, they're black women Trump supporters mm-hmm. who apparently had their Facebook page shut down momentarily by accident, according to Zuckerberg. I'm not sure what the full story is, but it became about... It, of course, turned into... Um, Was it that they were spouting the... Uh, bowl of a well that's the thing they are there that's the thing they so at the at the hearing it became about conservatives being censored right of course Mm -hmm. but in reality diamond and silk are like pizza gators like they're straight up like conspiracy theorists right like you know i I don't want to get into like censoring people on facebook debate but like they believe and parrot like dangerous stuff. So it's like, you know, again, like I said, there's some part of me that can, that can find the humor in Ted Cruz foregoing the data breach, uh, veil and just talking about diamond and silk. (laughs) But at the same time, he's talking about people who hold very dangerous beliefs. And again, I don't think diamond and silk 
actually believe this no, stuff. No. I think they're just doing whatever gets their views on Facebook. Right, exactly. They're entertainers. But I, I don't know. The, the whole, like, of course, there's always going to be, like, better talking points to come out of it than to come out of something than just memes and jokes and and the, and the gifts and all this stuff. But there's not a whole lot of it with this thing. And so... And there's also a part of me that when stuff like that happens, I feel bad for the person. But <laughs> like Zuckerberg? Yeah, but Zuckerberg <laughs> is such a bad person that yeah. I don't care. Yeah, who cares? He's but so when it's other people, there's yeah. a part of me that's like, man, like with the Fergie thing and the national anthem, you know what I mean? Yeah. Her national anthem was so bad. Like literally probably the worst televised national anthem of all time. But it gets to a point where you're like can we like, let's just ease off for a little bit. You know what I mean? Like I'm starting to feel kind of bad for Fergie. Did you not hear her national anthem at the all-star game? I heard it. Yeah. It was terrible. And she got made fun of ruthlessly. Yeah. But after a certain point, I start to feel bad. And it's like, there's, um, there's a book that I, that I read by John Ronson, who we, I think we both like, yeah. Um, called, so you've been publicly shamed. Right. I do feel like he needs an addendum to that because I think what's happening now is again, like everything moves in cycles. And I think some people have gotten bored with the easy pop culture meme. And, you know, now you kind of have to go out of your way to get on people's radar. Like, again, I I probably feel like if Fergie did the national anthem, you know, if that happened now, it would probably still result in the same amount of ire that it did months ago. Mm-hmm. But there is an element of like when, when I read that again, it, and I'm largely on his side, he's basically saying, you know, let's consider the people who are just like, I'm working a lowly job. I'm going somewhere, maybe overseas, mm-hmm. and I'm going to send right. a vaguely insensitive tweet and jump on this flight. And but it's not that this, and maybe we'll talk about this more when we get into cultural appropriation stuff. I don't even think that tweet is insensitive. It just was a joke. Yeah, okay, that, that one in particular, the one that we're talking about, and the reason why I was being vague, because we weren't planning on talking about this, and I can't remember exactly what it, it was. It was something about AIDS. Yeah, it was something about- She can't get AIDS because she's white. White, right. That, that one- is so perfectly an example of a joke that people wanted to take out of context. And then I think mob mentality took over at some point where people weren't even able to like read the text. They were only able to react, you know, um, so she lands and her life is ruined because, you know, now people are saying like fire her. They're finding out where she works. They're like, you know, doxing her, they're, you know, sending messages to her friends and family, all that stuff. That's terrible. That's awful. Um, that should not happen. Yeah. Then today we find out that Michael Cohen's third um, <laughs> client. The mystery client that he refused to name. That he refused to name has been named. And it's Sean Hannity. Right. And I couldn't help myself but to jump on Twitter and fire a shot towards Sean Hannity. And again, it's like, is there a level 
to which Sean Hannity should not be exposed to. No. Yeah, online just vitriol and reaction to his everything from his stupidity and benign kind of uh, obliviousness to his active kind of trolling and destructive behavior towards people. Right. I mean, this is a guy who pushed the conspiracy, the, the Seth Rich conspiracy theory mm-hmm. to the point that the family had to like tell him like, stop, you are, you're out of your, your mind. Yeah. And even people in his own kind of conservative kingdom had to be like, Hey man, chill out. <laughs> Which I have to say, like, Somebody was talking about, like, I saw a tweet where somebody was basically like, Fox News, the only place where vacations are, like, mandatory to take now. Mm-hmm. And I am kind of surprised still that, like, Laura Ingram had to go on vacation after what she said. That there's still some sense, semblance, even there, of, like, whoa, chill out. Go take a lot. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, you would think that there's just, like, Hey, go for it, man. Go after the kid. Go after David Hogg. Go after you know, whoever you want. But still in Fox News, there are things where people are like, uh, all right. <laughs> all right, Sean. Why don't you yeah. go go cool it for a little bit? <laughs> yeah. Like that's that's where they've gotten though. And talk about, like you said, like going back to the data thing where it's like you created this mess and then now you're like crying because it's like they're using my data that I post publicly right on this it's like yeah conservatives you guys have cre- have created this nest of vipers and then now it's all getting like exposed and destroyed and you know now conservatives are like they're silencing us you know yeah yeah um i'm gonna run through my notes real quick for this Facebook thing because I took the time to wrote it down. And so I'm at least going to oh, mum- mumble it out quickly. Yes. Uh, I want this like uh Job Bluth where he's doing <laughs> like all 50 ideas or whatever. Right. <clears throat> so going back to what you just said about people sharing the information, the, the big and sort of like the first meme to come out of the whole hearings was when Grassley asked Zuckerberg, uh, would you tell everyone what hotel you're staying at? And that was like the, that was like the ooh got him ooh. moment, you know? <laughs> yeah. And Zuckerberg was like, no. Blah, blah, blah. And all I could think is in that exact moment when Grassley's asking that, there's probably literally hundreds of thousands of people checking into hotels on Facebook. Yeah. Saying, I'm in this hotel right, right now. Going, taking a picture of the elevator going into their room and taking a picture outside of their hotel room to show everyone their view. It's like the point is like moot. It doesn't stand like nobody cares about this stuff. Yeah. Um, Vox had an article article that said uh, Mark Zuckerberg has been apologizing for reckless privacy violations since he was a freshman. Enough is enough to which my thought is just like, again, it's (laughs) kind of like, this data sharing thing is the entire purpose of Facebook, <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> like enough is not enough because it's literally what the platform is. Uh, Diamond and Silk, which also helped me realize that how much of a troll Ted Cruz is 
because mm-hmm. I think he was the first one that introduced the diamond and silk thing. And it was something that became abundantly clear during the campaign when he was uh, campaigning to be president. Right. But then somehow because sort of Trump wins and takes over, you sort of lose focus of that. And maybe because I spent so much time in like the conservative subreddit and they love Ted Cruz. Do you, they? Yes. You start to think like maybe this guy is just like a hardcore Christian or uh, cons- uh, uh, conservative. Mm-hmm. He, but he is just a straight up troll. Yeah. He, is, he, he has no beliefs. Well, look at his Twitter. Yeah. He, he's just a troll. Um, but what I did like the 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 one meme that came out that I really loved is somebody um, said Ted Cruz's follow up question should have been, uh, uh, Mr. Zuckerberg, is there any way that someone uh, that while you're browsing through Twitter, you can uh, the, the app will just automatically like a porn video? Uh, <laughs> and can you explain it to my wife, please? <laughs> In in what just pick one of the thousand scenarios that that could could happen. I know it's probably happened a lot before. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then the last thing I had was um, when I turned in uh, when I tuned in and the guy started ta- asking about the opioid epidemic. And then it's either the same guy or the next person that starts questioning him and starts asking him about wildlife conservation. And all the and like um, people selling uh, illegal hides through Facebook, and they're just starting this pile on of like, let's see how much like bad stuff we can just blame <laughs> yeah. on Facebook. And then another guy goes on to talk about to use this as an example of the persecution of Christians, and it just also made me realize that like these, all these people, alt writers, whatever you want to call them conservatives the ben shapiro's of the world they want to go on and on and on about equal opportunities and all this stuff and a a lot of the talk in around colleges in the conservative circles is uh well if you're black you you can get in easier just because you're black and but then we have in this congressional hearing someone a congressman or a uh representative uh, or a senator is literally saying can you please hire more Christians? So I was like, which yeah. one do you want? You yeah. know what I mean? Like, are we going for the best here? Like no discrimination whatsoever? Mm-hmm. Or, or should we say like, okay, well, we've got our black quotient filled. We've got our Asian quotient filled. Oh, now we have to also fill in these Christians because yeah. you know what I mean? It just is like the hypocrisy of the whole thing was, was it just was incredible. Yeah. Well, it's just like virtue signaling to your quote unquote base. Yeah. Yeah. He stands up for rights of Christians. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that's, that's what I'm saying. Like the whole thing is just like, like I said, these people have literally voted like a month ago, two months ago to renew nationwide spying on everybody. <laughs> they do not care about Facebook giving your data away. Yeah. So now they're just going to go with like whatever talking points they can pull from Breitbart or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, I don't know what level of engagement you want to give. I kind of wrote out my thoughts as a way to kind of get through it Yeah, kind of quickly. Now that so, I'm all worked up. 
I'm about to start sweating over here. Yeah. <laughs> you, should, uh, you shouldn't have worn long sleeves. <laughs> um, okay. So do you want my, um, my, uh, my quick thoughts? How do you want to do this? Do you want to yeah, so talk we're through going, it? So we wanted to talk about cultural appropriation. And it started with the... Well I, well, I guess it started really with the reception of Isle of Dogs. Right? Yeah. And the conversation that started around that. And then it sort of uh, branched out into uh, the problem with the poo. Is that what it's called? Or yeah. Something like that. The True TV documentary, quote unquote documentary, whatever that thing is. It's not a documentary. It's, it's a show. A, yeah, it's like a show. Um, a, one, a one-off show. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I think cultural appropriation is something that I've been wrestling with for a while. It probably honestly goes back to, um, to microaggressions. Um, the most hated of SJW terms, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, but, uh, I think on the one hand, we're both, I'm not sure. I'm actually not too sure of what Julia's experience has been but um you know our wives are filipino and my wife has been subject to some overt racism right and some microaggression kind of racism i don't know you know without my exposure to her and her experience or you know, some of the other people that I've been with that I would be terribly aware of this stuff. You know, mm-hmm. I think for me, that's part one. It's just like everyone's so afraid to admit their ignorance. I feel like we should just be open with it and just be like, we're all ignorant. We're all ignorant of a lot of things. Sure. And that's okay. Like my, my experience of the world does not account for the experience of a five foot Asian, yeah, absolutely, you know, uh, woman in Texas, Florida, and Virginia. You know where where we've been. Mm-hmm. So I just need to feel comfortable being like, "Yep, don't know, don't know about that stuff, don't know about this other stuff." There's some things I'm passionate about that I I have to be like I'm ignorant of a mm-hmm. lot of that stuff, even though I'm very passionate about it. So I think that's like, that's something that I've been like wrestling with and exploring. And then also, you know, I was raised in a conservative home where, you know, as I wrote in the notes, you don't apologize for anything. You, you just stand on the rightness of your existence and any ripples caused by your existence is just people who can't deal. Well, is it existence or is it belief? Well, see, that's what I'm saying. I think that is separate. Because I think belief is one thing, but I think it does go down to like people believing that their existence in this world and the things they encounter, their perception and their kind of, again, existence is right. Like these things that I'm doing as I stomp through this world, that's all right because I'm doing it. Belief is separate. Uh, I mean, is that wrong though? I mean, the existence thing, I think so. To, Not belief, though. To an extent, if that's what their experience is, that's what I mean, that's what you're arguing for the opposite side. You're you're saying that. 
they're you're saying that you know Elise's experience is right because that's oh, no, her no, experience. No, 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 no. I, I'm sorry, I switched over to talking about my conservative upbringing. I know, I know, but that's what I'm saying. I'm what I'm saying is these cons- like the, the 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 theoretical conservatives are thinking that this is right because that's what their existence is, and that's the only thing they've experienced, right? But I mean, Elise and Julia are in the same thing. That's the only thing they've ever experienced. And no. so to a degree, they're both right, I feel like. Well, no, I think, so I don't think that you're, maybe I'm not fully explaining my analogy. Okay. There are a few things at play here. Number I'm one, going to be the dumb white guy in this conversation. All right. No, number one, I truly believe, you know, we kind of said this, like, a, um, for, for me, did, did I talk about the onion and the Babylon Bee last time? Yeah. I said that on on air. Uh, I don't know. Okay, I'll say it again. <laughs> so, you know, the Onion has been. I, I saw somebody <clears throat> share some recent Onion headlines, and I agree with this tweet. The person was like, "The writers at the Onion are like taking scalps and nailing them to their cubicle walls." Yeah, because they have just like pulled out all the stops. And one of my favorite headlines I shared with you. Was when um, when John Bolton came in, they were like, John Bolton says uh, the war in Syria isn't going to be a cakewalk like Iraq (laughs) (laughs) in Afghanistan. You know, Mm -hmm. it's so like that is so true and so disturbing, you know. And then up comes this other satirical site called the Babylon Bee, which is Christian safe and kind of poking fun at the, you know, church culture, but then also poking at the culture culture. And I saw some Babylon B pokes at the church culture. The only thing yeah. I've ever seen from that is like basically the onion, but for conservatives. No, no. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, sometimes they'll make fun of like the Themselves. youth pastor, the, the worship mm-hmm. leader. And, and, you know, that's all like the gentle <laughs> ribbing of church culture. Sure. Like, again, they are not pulling out the stops against their own culture. They're trying to parrot, you know, the onion. But whenever they go for the culture culture, you know, they they attack like LGBTQ rights people. Mm-hmm. And I saw that getting getting shared and, you know, looked at like the growing number of likes or whatever. And the thing that stood out to me is, in my mind, the best satire punches up. Like it goes after the people in power. Mm-hmm. It can, and you you absolutely can, like, get some humor out of any culture, right? But the stuff that has teeth normally doesn't go after like the homeless culture, you know, and how few teeth they have. Like that's that's not worth satirically attacking and going after. For me, it's about kind of punching up you know, is, is where I think the strength of satire can be not a hundred percent. I'm not making a blanket statement. I'm just saying I think generally as a rule or a principle, I think that can generally prove to be true. Sure. But I think there needs to be a distinction, which I think a lot of cultural appropriation talk nowadays doesn't bother making this distinction is that 
punching up as like a blanket approach, I don't think, I think that only works if the people who are up are bad people doing bad things. I mean, sure, but, but I, I think you can also attack a power structure though, because I think again, this is the difference in what I was saying about the existence versus belief dichotomy with our wives. We're dealing with a minority. Their experience and existence in this culture is going to be drastically different than ours or like the straight white male experience of America. Yeah. So again, what I think you you tend to happen or, or what tends to happen again, conservative Christian white upbringing. That is not a belief. That's, that's an identity. That is an existence. And your existence as the white kind of in the heritage of your country, right? We have been past the baton of Christian belief established by our forefathers and the pilgrims before them, right? We are like the banner carriers of America as these Christian white, you know, Americans, people. Which, by the way, I'm not an American. I'm Canadian. Mm-hmm. But... You know, we, we, we get the idea. I was adopted by Americans. Sure. So, but, but those are, that's the idea that they like instilled in, you know, me and those in their circles of like tacitly, not that they were like pulling me aside and being like, listen, anybody who doesn't look like you is lesser than you. You just dominate them, you know, cause you, you have rights over them. Right. But you had this idea of like, listen. Your existence is the right existence because you affirm, you know, the Judeo-Christian God. You believe that the founding fathers uh, were, were all good Christian men. And it's just slanderous attacks to say that they owned slaves or, you know, had sex with slaves or anything like that or didn't believe in our understanding of the Bible. Right. So you just you live your life knowing that you are right. And anybody else who gets upset by that, they're just triggered, right? You just triggered a snowflake or whatever else. Because the ripples you're making in this world are is the right path. And everyone else needs to get on your path. Or if they're not on your path, they're in the way. And they deserve whatever happens to them. On the other side, my wife has an existence in this country that then might in some ways say like, yeah, you are valid. Your existence matters. But in the context of this culture, it's not accepted the way that mine was in my largely white suburb and all those other things, right? So she had a different path. And to sit there and say that, you know, again, just like you said, where you say like, hey, it's easier for black people again in universities. That's why it's all fair and equal, right? Like Jim Crow is over. I don't know why people are crying about institutional racism. It's like, yeah, because there, there are tendrils, right? There are effects beyond the moment and the minute and the second that Jim Crow ended that actually like have to play out in our culture, in our minds, in our structures. You know what I mean? All that doesn't end when you declare it over. Just like Lincoln and look at the history after Lincoln, right? He ended slavery, but flash forward to like 1930s, rural America or, or whatever, 
I don't know that is like, yay, racism and slavery is over, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's, that's what I'm trying to distinguish between. And so I think the onus is on me as the, the, the majority kind of figure and identity of the culture to stop and look at the other experience of people around me and to not stomp around the area like every step I put is right and anybody who's displaced by my you know, movements, they need to get out of my way. But that, I mean, isn't that, that's not true. That's true for everybody. I mean, shouldn't, I don't think, I don't think anybody, I don't think the opposite of that is, well, I'm a minority, so everything I do is right and true. And every, and just because I'm a minority, everybody has to listen to what I, every, everything that I say is right. No, no, it's, it's not. But I think that we need to, again, so this is, this is where I fall on cultural appropriation. We'll jump to the end, spoil the end, and then we'll walk backwards. All right. My feeling is. I want to allow for these conversations and debates to happen. Right. I do not want to be an active force shutting people down because they feel like Isle of Dogs is cultural appropriation or because they feel like, you know, the hippie bookstore that like trades in, you know, Eastern, you know, kind of uh, iconography Mm -hmm. to help sell or push but it's run by white guys. But, but, but it's run by people who are not from that culture, mm-hmm. right? I don't want to stop people from being like, yeah, that's, uh, that's like tokenism, you know? They're just taking my culture and trying to like turn a buck on it. But, or, that's, not, but that's not necessarily true because you don't know, like, you don't know who those people are. But I, I'm fine with having that conversation and examining it, but to just outright dismiss any sort of, what what I am doing is I am assuming that in this fictitious environment or whatever, that there are other signifiers that are alerting us to the sham nature of that persona, of that person. I'm not saying that this is like a pure kind of test facility where we know nothing about. I'm saying this is... Some, you know, bookstore has been open forever. The guy has said some culturally insensitive things. He gives some talks or has some speakers who are talking about like Eastern mysticism that if anybody went there who were from these, they'd be like, oh, he's, he's read a pamphlet and he's trying now to like get his own cult going. You know, it's like mm-hmm. Franklin Jones or whatever, you know, the white guy who is just trying to like find an identity. So he takes on another culture's identity and then Turns that for a profit or mm-hmm. whatever else, right? So again, I'm. You're right. I'm not talking about just pointing a finger <laughs> but at that's a random what you person. Said. <laughs> no, I'm again. I'm assuming like he owns a bookstore, right? Yeah. So so let, let let me touch it up then. I'm not talking about just like walking down the street and pointing out all the racists or the people who are kind of using and and exploiting Eastern iconography or culture or whatever else, right? I'm talking about the 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 general idea, just like you you would point and say, you know, all these people or maybe a majority of these people who are on Facebook are doing things that would disqualify them from how angry they are that their data is being used, right? That's a blanket statement that you are comfortable making, again, based on the same assumptions that I'm going to make, that as a blanket statement, 
if you look at the way that Eastern culture has been used in our culture, a lot of it has been in an appropriation kind of setting or manner. That it is not out of true kind of honoring of that culture. It is trying to take elements of it that and and use it to sell again something or to represent something. Um, you know, we, we talked about here, you know, the the artist, the white artist who painted Emmett Till, a very graphic representation of Emmett Till. Whole controversy came up on is she the right person to paint Emmett Till? You know, this white kind of middle class uh artist you know she has the right to do that but can there or should there be some thought given as to why she is painting this or something said to kind of like get in front of this controversy or to some way signal that we anticipate this and this is how we're justifying it rather than saying like i'm an artist i have the right to do this i'm going to do it you know what i mean I don't, I don't think, again, I think the power dynamics are off. I, I think that we're fooling ourselves if we say, like, it's a level playing field, man. I'm sure that there are some Asians out there who are appropriating white culture, and that's reverse racism. Like, that, that corollary does not track. You, there is no reverse racism. On paper, if we sit down and, like, we can prove, like, come up with an equation, like, see, reverse racism exists then you apply it out there into the culture and you're like oh well not like it looks like on paper you know because anybody who is again upset at a systemic racist problem so if a black person is upset at the culture that is systemically keeping them down and oppressing them and out of that they get upset at the white authority figures and therefore have certain feelings about white people well that's based off of a systemic issue where I don't have, I'm not subject to that. I can't say black culture is keeping me down because what, they won't let me say the N-word? And, th- and therefore that's reverse racism? Like, they, they do not have power to affect or control my life in the same way that the reverse is. So that's all I'm saying is, I think the people in power stomping around need to see the other people are stomping around and maybe take note of them and what they're saying. Again, allow the conversation to happen and then draw your own opinion. You can still have an opinion on it, right? That, I think, is the difference. I'm not saying that you just meekly shut up and you let them say whatever they want to say, and then you just like nod along with it and be like, you are absolutely right. I'm not going to question anything you said there, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's, that's, the dis- that's the fundamental distinction I think needs to be established. When you're talking about cultural appropriation, or any of this kind of like, you know, um, identity politics is another, you know, buzzword. Um, or whether you're talking about like microaggressions. It's, it's all, we're, we're all coming from the same place. That place of my existence is right. I'm not going to apologize for it. <clears throat> but I have power and you don't. Pause for a drink. Am I am I off anywhere in there? Uh, no, I guess not. So, I mean, my 
You're so tired from the Zuckerberg uh, <laughs> research. Um, the problem is that, I don't know. I, I guess my idea of cultural appropriation or the way that I feel it gets used now is that basically uh, I feel like I, I have no issues. Like you said, I agree with you 100% with the conversation ha- happening. That's great. Super interesting to read, to watch, listen to. If it's being done, like honestly, right. If it's not being like approached with an agenda. The problem I have is a lot of times the stuff that I see that is being cultural appropriation, it seems like the problem is that it's a white guy doing it and that you can't use somebody else's culture. And the problem is not, it, it just go, the, the, the problem is surface level. It is, well, this is a white person doing it and a white person can't do that. I mean, the whole thing sort of blew up when a black woman told a white guy he couldn't have dreadlocks just because he's white. And it's like, there's a lot to it, I guess, right? There's a lot more to that conversation, but I don't, I just have a problem with the, this sort of blanket idea of like, I understand the power dynamics and stuff. I understand that the whole point of cultural appropriation is that it is a, uh, dominant population pulling from minority populations. But I feel like that, especially with culture, I feel like, and especially with the idea of America, that that division is kind of arbitrary. Do you know what I mean? Like, if the whole point of America is that we're a melting pot and that is that all of these cultures get mixed together. Like, I understand I'm not trying to, like, ignore... I'm not trying to ignore slavery, right? I'm not trying to ignore what has happened to what happened to Asian people during World War II in our country. I'm not trying to ignore those things. But like I thought the whole point of culture was to like pull from different places. I thought the whole point was to like expand your horizons. Yeah, but but I think that there's a very interesting conversation that happens in a especially minority group is sometimes faced with assimilation and for lack of a better term in some in some of their minds it probably does feel like extinction you know that in my assimilation of this culture i am sacrificing my identity as where wherever they came from right i think again all those arguments make sense if you make it a zero sum game where everyone's just exchanging the same tiles and nobody has any advantage over anybody else but i think what complicates it is as people start to assimilate their culture the culture that then starts coming over and taking place it's something that they might not like. And if they fully invest themselves into the culture and say like, go for it. We're not going to teach our language. 
We're not going to honor our holidays and traditions where we came from. We are fully going to assimilate to this culture. That there would be some kind of a give and take from that culture if it's a melting pot, right? That your flavor would actually affect the overall stew. But that's not the case. The overall stew is overwhelmingly white, Judeo-Christian, you know, blah, 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 blah. Look at Donald Trump, right? Yeah, but I mean, what are we supposed to do about that? Well, well, that's what I'm saying. Like, I think- you're bringing your culture into that situation. Like, do we just put everything on hold while everyone else catches up? No, like I, I, what I don't understand what what the solution to that is. So again, I think the first one is again going back to the analogy of I'm the big stomping giant in this land, literally just stomping around doing whatever I want, right? All these other people are leaving other lands to come to my land because for whatever reason they think it's better, maybe it is better, right? And they all start filling up my land. Well, I can keep stomping around and being like, I can't stop stomping. This is what I do. This is what I want to do. I want to stomp around, right? So you all, if you're going to live here, you're just going to have to deal with it. Yeah, but that's, or, that's not what I'm that's not what I'm advocating but, for. But, but no, I think but, but what you're what you're getting at is this idea of like what do we do about it? I think what we do is first we like stop and and listen to it, right? So I think the one thing is that the people feel threatened because they think these people who are claiming or decrying cultural appropriation or whatever are doing so out of like a hundred percent, I am right, don't you dare tell me I'm wrong, like idea. Specifically with Isle of Dogs, um, Emily Yoshida has written about it in Variety. There's been other writings um, about the cultural wrestling with this film that have been very nuanced as i've read them i was surprised especially given by some of the titles right which i think sometimes the writers don't have control over their titles an editor is going to come in try and give it like a clickbaity title or whatever i think what happens is a lot of people react to a title over what they think is going to be said but what you actually get when you dig in are people wrestling with their heritage and with their culture. And they're saying, like, these are the feelings that I'm having. I'm not even saying that it's right. I'm just saying this is what I'm experiencing, right? And I think, again, as me, as part of the predominant culture, I think that I have a, an opportunity. Again, I don't have to do this. An opportunity, though, to listen to them as they work out their issues. And I find it fascinating. I find it fascinating when I was uh, dating a Seminole Indian to sit down. They, they had the talk with us of like, hey, if you get married, this is what happens to the bloodline. This is what happens to, you know, our rights and your child's rights as a Native American. Um, you know, uh, and, and, and these are things they weren't saying. Like, therefore, we're, we're not allowing this or we're allowing this. Or at this time, then you have to do this. They were just explaining to me what is going to happen. Again, never occurred to me that, like, there could be people with a, a history that is not my own that could be affected by who their children marry and who their children go with that could affect, like, livelihoods and all those things right and like the reservation i had to know about that like what does it mean to live on or off of a reservation all those things like that was eye-opening and that was and again they weren't saying like 
we're pushing this idea, but they're like, these are the things that we face. This is things you should know about if it's, you know, if you're, if you're getting serious. So, I mean, like, I don't know that those people who are trying to claim cultural appropriation or wrestling with assimilation into a culture are saying like, absolutely hundred percent, this is right. Or this is wrong. I think a lot of times for the, for the, um, the most interesting of them, of the writers or the filmmakers or the songwriters or whatever, there's a tension there. And, and I think that that tension needs to be accounted for. Or else, yeah, we're just stomping being like, you can't expect everyone to stop everything and wait for you all to catch up or like grow up, grow bigger. So you can either like make the same, you know, <clears throat> waves that I'm making or whatever. Um, and again, listen to the conversation, then form your own opinion. Like, so I, I might listen to it and, and say like, oh, you're, that's a total overreaction. Okay, then that's it. Then we go on from there. But I think, again, we're, we're not dealing with, we're, we're dealing with beliefs. And I think that's the difference that I was trying to make between existence and beliefs. Like you can have different beliefs and that's fine, right? But I don't think that we should sit there and say like, because I, I exist in this way as the white male, whatever I feel is valid and I don't have to listen to anybody. You know, have your beliefs challenged. I think that can only be healthy. And so like with Isle of Dogs, again, my first reaction is like, I watched the trailer. I'm like, that looks amazing. I can't wait to see it. I love Wes Anderson. And then I start seeing a little bit of backlash about people. And I'm like, whoa, it's just a trailer. Calm down, people. That's a little reactionary, you know? And then I watch the film and then I read all all the takes on it. And what I realized is their beliefs don't have to affect my enjoyment. My, my experience with that film is separate from their experience. So then all I'm trying to do is understand their experience, but it doesn't necessarily mean that I have to then say like, well, I hate Wes Anderson now. You know, I've, I've read all these other people and they make good points and I can't like Wes Anderson. Well, I'm more interested in the conversation. Like I know, look, I know you love Isle of Dogs, right? I'm not worried about your enjoyment of a Wes Anderson movie How being dare messed you assume? Up, right? How dare you? You don't what know. What I'm interested in is the conversation. And I think what feels so exhausting to me about it and what feels so kind of like what makes me feel so defeated or just makes it seem like a defeatist argument is that if someone who is way smarter and more creative and more nuanced than me, like Wes Anderson, can't get this thing right, can't do something, can't like try and integrate his influences from different cultures without being called to the carpet. Like what chance do I stand? Like, what's the point? You know what I'm saying? Because like, like now look, I haven't seen the movie. (laughs) I didn't even look that much into the backlash. All I know is from the notes, you said some stuff about like, um, he's like become like a, uh, hero of the of the whatever of the whatever movement now like Wes Anderson is now in the mouths of like all these alt writers yeah yeah which I wanna, I wanna they're say, just contrarian yeah 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 I want to say that he's in the mouths he's he's absolutely not right coming out and saying like I'm being unfairly maligned and blah, like he's not crying at all about or coming out against 
anything that's been written right. about his film. And Bill has also texted us about it the over the past couple of days. But it's like to me, if it's if it's if it's that popular of a topic, if it's if if that if if that if this Wes Anderson movie has caused that much of an uproar, like what where is the like what chance do i have to talk yeah, but, to, but, but to, i think like it just is like makes me feel like what's the point yeah well i think the devil's in the details on this and again you don't have to be as interested to read but i think that it, it for this case in particular it would take watching the film and then reading the articles and well, again, i did you, read the one article yeah again i don't think that you have to you know engage in this way <clears throat> but i think on the one hand i will say that there is a possibility that, yeah, the issue is that hard that somebody like Wes Anderson could create something that is that creates issues. Like, yes, the, the, the problem could be that exasperating. But that doesn't mean that then we ignore it because the problem is so kind of nuanced and has so many, you know, kind of um, uh, roots. That goes so far, right? It's like, oh man, listen, this is this is too twisty, too big of an issue. Like, I can't, I can't handle this right now. I think we have to say, like, no, it it could be that big. It could be, and I don't have time to worry about it, or I'm not going to. I think, I think you could say that, you know. But with this, for example, one thing that that, that I wrote in the notes. Um, so he does not subtitle the Japanese, which isn't totally true because he finds other ways for you to for him to subtitle the Japanese basically whether it's interpreters who are saying the English interpretation or machines that are kind of writing it out for you there are other ways that you get it translated we were in a surprisingly packed theater and the amount of times that people laughed and giggled at any Japanese word that sounded vaguely english was like okay people you know like calm down it's not funny to say sito instead of sit uh especially in a in a long screed of japanese Mm -hmm. like there are long you know kind of phrases and speeches in japanese that go untranslated and everyone is just sitting there quietly until they hear something that sounds english and then there's just the reaction of like, <laughs> you know, like that's, that sounds funny, you know, mm-hmm. that is, I think can be problematic. Again, but, did, did Wes Anderson intend that? Probably not, not in the way that he's, you know, what he's shown before on his films. Um, but the fact that people did that to his film, you know, it's, it's the, uh, it, it's the, it's the death of the author right the yeah but and i know how bad this is going to sound i know what this lumps me i can't believe we we waited this long to get here (laughs) but the problem i have with that is that that's only a problem if you're a white person you know what i mean yes okay yeah or or yeah another anybody who would sit there and say like oh that sounds silly that sounds funny. Like, it just, it just seems strange to me that it's, that it's, that it's, 
No, that that, that literally takes... just because a, someone is is who is white is laughing at someone else's a- accent that it makes it wrong. No, no, no. That that that's a small example. What again? What I think I was trying to say uh, in the notes, maybe. But I mean that that point that point exactly is raised in the Apu documentary. Yeah. Right. Like they're like the, one of their largest criticisms of Azaria is that he is white. And he's doing this voice. But then he goes on to interview Russell Peters, who's Indian, who is known, world-renowned for doing imitations of, of dozens of different people. Dozens of different accents. You, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. What, what I want to say is I feel like there is a, a conflating of issues here where... Again, I think the Apu documentary does this, and I think a lot of the- And let me just clarify very quickly. I am on board with judging someone pretty harshly as soon as they laugh at somebody's accent. As soon as I hear a white guy laugh at somebody else's accent, my first thought is going to be, that guy's probably yeah. uh, a racist. Right, right. So, so <laughs> but I'm- theoretically, there's something that bothers me about it. Yeah, So, so- I think one one issue is that we conflate a symptom issue with like a core or root issue. So I would I would argue I don't know that this is true, but I have a strong suspicion and maybe I shouldn't even say this. Maybe I should base it in the writing that I read about Isle of Dogs because mm-hmm. there there's actual writing that states this. <clears throat> but I I feel almost confident that I could say the Apu thing is a symptom of a deeper racist issue that maybe that comedian or people have had to deal with their whole life. And then it just, Apu is the straw that breaks the camel's back. It becomes the issue through which you can get to the core or the root issue, right? The problem is not that people say, thank you, come again, and laugh at you. Because they, because you're Indian. How, how dare you with that voice? Right. No. 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 That the, the 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 problem is is that my mentality saw Apu and thought, oh, I could say this to a you know an East Indian person and it will be totally fine. Like I can do this. Or the Redskins. We can name our professional NFL team. You know the Redskins, <clears throat> and we we are totally valid and okay. In, in doing this, like yeah. that, that comes from a, again, this acceptance that my existence is gospel, that my existence is right. And that my feelings, if I think this thing is okay, is okay. And that brings with it all the racist baggage that has been imparted on, to you by your family, by your environment, by the culture. Right. And you have to work to get that out. And part of it, the, the negative reaction to all this stuff, I kind of want to say a lot of it's probably the poison leaving the body. Like if you just let go of it, you'll be in a better place if you just stop getting so triggered by other people getting triggered. Right. If you just calm down and let people have their say, then you might. And I'm not talking to you specifically. I'm saying generally mm-hmm. you might find more freedom than getting furious at people who stand up and say like, hey, when you, um, you know, mistake my culture for another culture, that, that kind of annoys me. 
the, the, the fact that you feel like you could look at me and assume, you know, like, like my, my wife and I in Texas walking by a Chinese restaurant that's opening and just somebody goes, Hey, when are you all opening? Assuming that she is Chinese and the owner of the restaurant. It's like, we're just walking by this place and we're also like 24. I don't know, maybe 24, you could own a restaurant, but I'm like, why would you assume what, you know, they're like two triggers, not, not triggers, but there are two things you had to like jump through two observations to make that assumption mm -hmm. that would have made you maybe say like, oh, maybe they're not owners of this restaurant. Right. So, I mean, there, there, there's, there's that aspect to it, but I think that a lot of this is like the drip. And then finally, it's like, you know, I'm tired of the racist kind of like bull and the acceptance that this is okay. Like Apu is not okay in the context of your country and your, yeah, I'm going to say it, privilege, you know, that, that that is what sets it off. It's not, Apu is not the issue, you know, mm -hmm. Apu is the signal for the deeper issue. And, and again, I think that's, that's my problem is I think even that documentary conflates the symptom with the root when really I would say like, Hey, how did it feel to have people look at you and whether it was the Apu voice or whatever to treat you as like other, which I'm sure they did anyway to be like, Oh, you look different than me. Oh, sure. you're from a right. That, that I think is representative of a core issue you know but it's it's harder to get at that because then you have to use words like microaggression or whatever else it's much easier to say apu is now the signifier through him i can express myself better and clearer he becomes a mascot of sorts and yeah, isle of dogs I too i don't think but i don't think that that's a good argument for saying those characters shouldn't exist again i would agree with you <clears throat> you know and, and i think that some of them weren't even saying like they shouldn't exist and again listen it was a true tv documentary right and it was driven by a guy who's a comic and i would again say an entertainer mm -hmm. there are scenes in that that i strongly uh, suspect were staged including his reaction to some stuff. Mm -hmm. I would think that in a longer form, some of those people who he interviewed, who I found very convincing and very thoughtful, would articulate the issue better and clearer than that you know, hour-long documentary did. So again, I, I probably, again, I listened to it. I formed my opinion. I think the Apu thing is a straw man. I think that's a side thing. But again, I have to agree at the deeper level of racism that he's picking at and say, yeah, there, there's something there. Sure. So I, I get to form my own opinion, which again is, is the ultimate point that I come from this. It's like these things are not right and wrong. You don't have to decide yes or no and then have that dictate your whole life, you know, to say like, yeah, there's systemic racism. Well, now I can't enjoy half the things that I did before, because now I, I believe that systemic racism exists. So out with X, Y, Z, you know, you don't have to say that it's not right or wrong. It's just understanding. That's all it is. And then forming your opinion. That's it. But l listen first, then form your opinion. Don't just 
like close up and clam off because you're either like the the issue's too big, it's too involved, it, you know, it's too angry, it's too social media, you know, all these people like throw out all these like again straw man things to mm-hmm. be like, uh, I can't have any civil conversation online. It's like, yeah, do you think maybe it's you? If you can't have a civil conversation anywhere, I maybe think it might be online. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't. Again, I've had civil conversations online. Uh-huh. Like again, I think it's us. It's a, we're the problem, yeah. right? So I mean, like, deal with that. Don't deal with again. I think Hank Azaria is made. I out think to online be a, facilitates it. <laughs> I, I think it can. In the I same think way you could. Can. I think if you were in person, what this is, I, I'll let. I'm not going to go on the tangent. We already talked about Facebook, right? And and I disagree with that. We we have thousands of years of face to face debate and discussion happen, and people were burnt at the stake. For things that they said, I don't, I don't know that it's like, yeah, online brings out this level never seen before, you know, you, you would literally, you've, you've gotten killed for disagreeing before hundreds of years ago. Maybe even today, some places. So anyway, that's my cultural appropriation take. Okay. I think that we all just need to recognize our position listen feel free to form our own opinions and realize it's not a yes or no continuum that we're playing on here Mm -hmm. it is shades of gray and i think people who are advocating certain things are far more nuanced than you think they are if you would just listen to them Mm -hmm. and engage the stuff you know you don't have to again this is not directed at you but again, you know, people um, will, will largely like rail against something. And then it's like, have you read it? And they're like, no. Yeah. Okay. Well, then either don't talk about it or commit to reading it and then come back and have the conversation. I think that's the bigger piece that's missing in this whole thing is like actually do your homework and engage before you form your, you know, opinion. Yeah. Then I so I listened to Bird Box on your recommendation. Uh, after watching A Quiet Place, mm-hmm. um, I listened to the audiobook this past weekend, and I really liked it a lot. Yeah, uh, and it's it is this it's sort of this same like generic setup where it's like you lose one of your senses. Yeah, uh, which makes for a great setting premise yeah but what i'll say about it is that a quiet place a quiet place's setup is like uniquely it uniquely serves the format of film Mm -hmm. where it's like you don't necessarily need sound to enjoy a movie you can just watch what's going on even though there is sound in the movie of course and bird box you don't need as a reader you don't need to be able to see anything you can't see anything when you're reading the book all you see are the words on the page yeah you know what i'm saying so it is 
like uniquely formed for a book setting. So then finding out that they're making it into a Netflix movie <laughs> was really confusing. Yeah. <laughs> because the entire time I'm listening to it, I'm like, this, I'm, I'm, you know, drawing the parallels to a quiet place, but I'm thinking to myself, this would never work as a movie because the characters are blind half the time. Right. But again, <laughs> it works perfectly when you're reading it because you don't need any sort of visual stimulation. The entire thing's in your head anyways. And so it makes it all that much better if in your mind you're imagining basically total darkness and you're hearing all these sounds around you or you're wondering what the outside or you actually have no idea. You know what I mean? It, it yeah. feeds into this sense of like, I have no idea where these people are at. I know they're in a house. I know they're in a neighborhood. I have no idea what that house or that neighborhood looks like. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So I, I can't like... I'm not then drawn into sort of criticizing their movements or how they set up everything and all this stuff. Um, but I, I really enjoy, like I said, you recommended it on like Friday or something. And so I started listening to it that Friday night when I took the dog for a walk and I was done with it by like Sunday evening. Like yeah. I, I pushed through. It, it was it's, super it's good. It's not a long book either. No, it's if, only if nine I remember. hours long. Yeah, it's only nine. And um, <clears throat> I think again, like it, it, it proves the value of somebody who thinks through their scenario more than just that initial first good thought mm -hmm. that maybe they had. Which again was kind of like the distinction I was trying to make between like the the generic horror that has like the one image that they just keep going back to again and again and again, mm -hmm. and the horror that keeps reiterating itself. And on this one, it you know the the relationship I think is strong, strongly written. You have <coughs> again like the narrative finds new ways of exploring its premise. So you kind of see these people at the end of something that's happened to all the people in this house, like all mm -hmm. the people came together in house, but now there's only two left, right? If I remember two left when like dur during parts of the narrative, does it do flashbacks? Yeah. So the yeah. way it happens is it starts with the mom and the kids going down yeah. the river and right. it cuts it cuts. So she ultimately has to take the journey from the house 20 miles down river to this other place. She's, she's going on faith that there's some military right. kind of compound that she's heard about, right? but could never verify its existence. So yeah, their, their life in this house has gotten so bad right. that she just has to chance it on the river. Did you tell, did you say what the, what the premise is too? You can't. Right. So the premise is basically the idea is, there's something in the world, and actually this is my one issue, slight issue know. with the book, is there's something in the world that upon seeing it drives you crazy, suicidally crazy, sometimes homicidally crazy. Either way, as soon as you see it within five minutes or whatever, you're dead. You've either killed your, you've killed other people and you've killed yourself or you've just killed yourself or whatever. You go, you go absolutely crazy eventually you they realize it's creatures although of course they never see them or else mm -hmm. they would go crazy my only real issue with that is 
it's interesting because th- I think there's an interesting difference between this and a quiet place in that because they give you a little bit more in a quiet place, you're able to nitpick it like we did last week, mm-hmm. even though I don't think it hurts the movie, but you are able to nitpick the thing about like sounds and all these different things. And you know that it's these giant insects and whatever. Whereas it being so abstract in bird box that you just see something go crazy. <laughs> you can't really nitpick that, but at the same time, it's pretty generic yeah. and it feels kind of cheap. Well, well, okay. But, but that's what I'm saying is I think like, again, you have the idea Great idea. We've had a few beers. Oh, man, you go crazy. That sounds great. Write it. Yeah. But what he does is he takes that premise and he, like, builds it out. Yeah. And so from set pieces to world building, which I think is done really well, um, the ending, which I think also fixes some an issue that I had with A Quiet Place, mm-hmm. which all I'll say is it addresses the question of, how far can something like this spread without people, you know, responding? Like, yeah. is, the, is the creature in a quiet place really so indestructible that it would take out the world? Right. Which is what John Krasinski wants to, to believe, at least because he can't find anybody in Japan or as he's going around the radio, like there's nobody, right. you know, um, which I, I don't believe. But I, I think that this one builds its world out a little better. And I think the story itself, too, is told so well that it doesn't give you time to, like, nitpick that much. Because you're just yeah really being propelled along. Well, and that, too, is my second issue with the, with the oh, book. Oh, we're just dis- <laughs> we're just uncovering more and more. Okay, And this, again, it's not really an issue. Like I said, I finished it in a weekend. So it's it's really not an issue. But it – and I love – Short books, mm-hmm. short chapters. Give me small paragraphs to break it up. That's make it as says, easy to yeah. read as possible. But this book takes that to an extreme to where <laughs> there is a lot of like, oh, this chapter is a minute and a half long. Chapter and it ends on a pretty 17. big cliffhanger. And it's like, just give me the next part. You know what I mean? <laughs> that happens a lot in this book. Yeah. Um, but again, maybe that's what drove me to... Right. Listen to it so quickly. I would argue so, yeah. But yeah, so it's it's basically this these creatures somehow start appearing, drives people crazy. You're following a woman who's pregnant. Uh again, so so you're following her. She has to travel down the river. They're blindfolded, of course, they don't see anything. And that is intercut with the chapters of how she went from living in the normal world to getting to the river, which is basically her going answering an ad that was put like in the paper of like, once this thing starts, Mm -hmm. like come here for shelter, showing up to that house and living with these people. Exactly. So you you have like the house story, which is almost like a creature house survivalist story. Right. Then you have this trip down the road, road river, which has one of the most terrifying scenes ever where just imagine if you hear something, And you don't know, like, is this a person? Is the person mad? Is this a creature? Um, Scenes in it. Um, And you have this kind of family dynamic coming out of it. I mean, Mm -hmm. the whole story is just really well. And and within the house thing, you also then have 
uh, a mystery character showing up later on. Yeah. Which is handled really well. Really well. And and then even at the end, you have another whole set of circumstances that are making you sort of suspicious of what's going on. Yeah. And it just is, it's really handled super well. And it's not like, I I didn't think it was very scary or anything like that. I mean, it had some moments where it was like, it's kind of upsetting, I guess, mm-hmm. but I never thought it was super scary, but man, it just is, it's, it just is like, it just moves along so quickly. Yeah. And there's so many good ideas that are handled really well that keeps it moving along. Yeah. And it never really feels like it's dragging down. I, I just really, I really liked it a lot. So after uh, listening to it, I wanted to, uh, I, my tradition uh, lately, uh, as I finish books, as you I'll eat go, it, I'll go, yeah, <laughs> I'll go on page to, by page. I'll go onto Reddit and I'll just do a quick search to see what people are talking about it. And no one was really talking about this okay, outside of the Netflix news. But yeah, but before you go on, just one nit that I want to ask you about: Bird Box. What do you think of that title? Yeah, it's nothing special, but I think that that that's my guess more than anything. People were like, oh, you got to read this book. What is it? It's Bird called Box. Bird Box. And people were like, nope. Yeah. I'm out. I mean, you, you get it from the story. I mean, you know oh, what it is. There's least, a re- but... Yeah, there's a reason. It, it makes sense. It's really good. but Yeah, it's probably not the best title. Yeah. So, so go on. So, yeah, they're talking about Netflix. So the Netflix news was like, hey, John Malkovich is going to be in Bird Box. So then I go in to see what people are talking about. And like a few comments down, someone was like, um yeah sandra bullock's the lead character they couldn't get any young in- actresses interested in the lead role so they cast sandra bullock and rewrote the whole thing it's kind of like oh boy <laughs> like not only was i skeptical because of the whole blindness thing but now they're like rewriting the whole thing so i don't know but then like i said it's being apparently it was written by the person that wrote um arrival that gets me excited. And the director has done a bunch of good stuff, apparently. So it's like, I don't know. I don't know what to think now. But Yeah, I, l- I looked her up. And she- she's okay. She's definitely swung back and forth. Okay. But um, what's your... I, I just want to get your-, your quick take. I won't go on about this. But as just a casual moviegoer yeah. and Netflix subscriber... What's your feeling on Netflix and their and the amount of their product? Are you happy to have just like so much content? Are you happy that Netflix is at least investing in creating new content and isn't just interested in maintaining or repackaging old content? Or do you think you know, Netflix is the death of culture and cinema and all they, they, they're just putting out content. They don't, they don't really care yeah, what it is. I mean, or, as a guy who lives in Virginia beach and will never be able to make it to cans or the con, whatever it's called, or, uh, you are a white guy, Austin in Virginia beach. film festival, what Sundance or, basically southwest any major film festival and who would never have access to those movies in the first place like i think it's great 
I have no issues with it. As someone, I'm also as as um, uninterested in film culture as you could be. Right. I have no issues with it. Okay. Uh, I mean, I'm all for like preserving the theater experience and all that stuff. But at the same time, like these are people, these are people who are worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Like if you want people to continue to go to movies, stop putting a stranglehold on all the theaters, stop making it so expensive to go to the movies just so you can squeeze out an extra hundred thousand dollars. You know what I mean? Like, like, like these idiots want to complain about people not going to the movies or they're doing it because it's affordable. And like you're worth millions and millions of dollars. Like I have zero sympathy for you. I do not care. The the thing that, always surprised me is how people see the death of like an industry and don't iterate on it like i don't claim to have all the answers but you better believe if i was amc's ceo or whatever i am saying hey guys all ideas on the table what do people want out of their experience yeah and if that means cutting down your 13 screen theaters down to like four really well-kept kind of theaters that offer a premium experience that is also monitored so that people don't have to worry about having a negative experience in your theater. Yeah. Like that's what you start doing. You don't just like build another multiplex and offer the same condiments and uh, the same, you know, 17-year-old managers who can't enforce any rules mm-hmm. to, like, keep people not just safe, but keep them from having a terrible experience in your theater. Like, that's the problem. Like, just listen to what the complaints are from people who go see movies and start there. Start addressing those. Mm-hmm. And that starts with, like, I don't want people pulling their phones out. I don't want people talking. I don't want people being obnoxious in the movies. Like, see, I don't, I don't care about that stuff as much. See, you say that, I'm but then you complained about way. a quiet place. <laughs> yeah, about because the that lady woman who literally talked for an hour and a half straight. That what you think I'm talking about? That's exactly what I'm talking but about. That's, there's nothing the theater can do about that. That is a personal choice. That is a bad personal choice that she made. I would be trying to address stuff like that. I would address. I, I would I would do I stuff. would address the new Star Wars being on 10 out of the 15 screens in a the theater when it comes out. Listen, I might say that too, but if you look at their bottom line, if that's where they make their money for the year, then I get but it. that's that's my point. They're making their the money that way because of the way Disney is strangling theaters. Yeah. They they can't control Disney, but they can control their environment and they can maybe add some other stuff to it. I don't know. Try, try and make some like special engagement features. Sure. Get some people do Q and A's. But they know. can't do that. You know why? Because they have to have Disney movies on a certain amount of screens for a certain amount of time out of the year, or else they don't get the Disney movies. Yeah. Well, I mean, right now there's they don't have that complaint. So do it now. Do it during the summer. I don't know. Try something. But it just seems like AMC is like, yep, our ship's going down. Nothing we can do about it. 
Well, I mean, there probably isn't because, like I said, they're being squeezed by the millionaires who are making the movies. L- listen, I think w- w- without getting into like you don't want to badmouth the movie makers. No, no, no. I'll, I'll badmouth the movie makers, but but that's a separate conversation. I think what what I want to say is, again, I don't know what they're doing. I would start if I was AMC. I would start by reaching out to to Netflix and saying, "Listen, you guys are clear, clearly into partnerships." What partnership do I need to make with you where I can show your original films in our theaters that we will have some kind of an agreement where I will I will show them. So then I can advertise along with Netflix like, hey, they're putting out the Martin Scorsese movie. Watch it at home if you want. That's cool. But if you want to see it on the big screen, you can only do that at AMC. Right. We're the only ones to have a partnership with them. But like, why am I going to pay $11 a month for Netflix and then go pay $100 to see a movie in the theater with my wife? You wouldn't. But the film culture would. You wouldn't. You would not pay $100 to take a lease on a date when you could just watch the movie on Netflix. Listen, I've paid to rent a movie through a service like Vudu knowing that it was coming out on Netflix. That's four bucks. In a, in a month or, or two. That's $4. Yeah. If I go... Anyway, listen, <laughs> you're, 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 you're beside the point. What I'm saying is, is, all I'm saying is try something, right? Even if that's a failed idea, you know what's a surefire failed idea? Doing nothing. Basically giving me like crappy lean back chairs. Mm-hmm. I mean like, there you go, sucker. And popcorn's an extra dollar. Like that's our business model. Well, I'm just arguing that they can't try anything else because of the restrictions that the major th- studios put on them to play their movies. They That's can my do point. Because they can't do anything else. All they can do is charge you extra for popcorn. They can do something. That's all I'm going to say. Okay. Well, I don't have anything else. All right. I'm good. I'm sweating too. Yeah. All right. Man. Yeah. You barely did it. We coasted in on fumes. Yeah.